As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, I've been really looking forward to today's discussion. In fact, it's the first of two discussions we're going to be hearing over the next couple of weeks here on Unbelievable as we debate whether the Gospels portray an accurate reflection of the historical Jesus. Uh, we'll be asking how the Gospel traditions reach the Gospel writers on today's programme. And joining me on the phone is Bart Ehrman. He is a popular New Testament historian and his new book, Before the Gospels, How the Earliest Christians Remembered, Changed and Invented Their Stories of the Saviour, claims to say that in the period before the stories of the life of Jesus were written down, when oral history essentially preserved these stories, they would have evolved and changed over time. Which raises the question of whether we can trust that the Gospels do reflect an accurate picture of Jesus. Well, opposite Bart for today's discussion is another noted New Testament historian, Richard Borkham, whose book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses has been very influential in establishing the role of eyewitness testimony in the Gospels and indeed the reliability of the New Testament in general. Uh, Richard's own work is actually addressed at several points in Bart's new book today. So we're going to be hearing him debate the issues around how these Gospel stories were passed down and written down and the role of eyewitness testimony. And then in the second show, we'll be debating the psychology of eyewitness testimony and uh, whether stories always change shape in the process of being told. If you've got any kind of interest in this area, this is a real treat of a couple of discussions that we're hosting today on Unbelievable. I've always said I love bringing people together like uh, like Richard and Bart uh, and I hope you don't mind gentlemen me being on first name terms for the purpose of today's program um, first of all Richard um, it's been a long time since you were on the program so welcome back thank you very much yes uh, we, you came in last 
time, though this was several years ago now, to discuss things with James Crossley, another mm-hmm. New Testament historian. Yes. Uh, that was on your book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and, and uh, your book, uh, Jesus and the God of Israel. Um, that was a very popular show, spe- oh, yes. especially via podcast. Lots uh-huh. of people really enjoyed that. Um, and, um, and so it's great to have you back again. It's, you, you turn your hand, though, to many areas of theological interest in terms of New Testament theology, don't you? Ah, yes, I do. What yes. have you been working on recently? Uh, recently, I've actually been working on uh, the excavations at Magdala, the place where Mary Magdalene came from, mm. which is mm. on the Sea of Galilee. Very exciting new excavations. Um, probably the most relevant excavations that are going on now for kind of gospel's interest. Um, So I've been doing that. The other thing I've been doing is writing three additional chapters for a new edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Fantastic. Which will be out later this year. Oh, right. Well, Mm. we look look forward to that. Very appropriate, then, that we're doing it this year again, uh, the issue of the Eyewitnesses. Um, You've been working, obviously, in New Testament studies for a long time. A very long time. How how would you say Jesus and the Eyewitnesses was received when when it was first published? Oh, um, huge range of reactions <laughs> from people who are wildly enthusiastic to people who absolutely hate it. Um, and <laughs> Where does Bart fall on that? We'll, we'll find out, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. I, he, he doesn't agree with me as far as he says in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've established that much. Uh, it did, I know, at the time when I recorded that show, it had recently won the Michael Ramsey Prize for... Uh, for, for publishing, so um, obviously a lot of people did rate it as as having a, a very something very influential to say in the whole area, um, and uh, I've seen many others quoting from it in the years since. But um, we're looking forward to today's discussion, and um, uh, um, it's going to be a bit of a marathon as we're going to be doing two editions of the program today with Bart and uh, and Richard. So Bart, welcome back to the show great to have you well, on thanks for having me again um and sorry we can't have you in person because normally uh, i managed to catch you while you're over but we thought we wanted to get hold of you um while this book is you know in the process of being launched um you write a lot of books bart um th- this one though i suppose um goes to the heart of a lot of what you've always done in terms of your new testament studies whether whether we do have an accurate portrayal of jesus in the gospel so so why this book right now would you say well, I've long been interested, of course, in in, uh, in the gospel portrayals of Jesus, and um, since I was a graduate student back in the 70s and 80s, I, I've been intrigued by the question of what was happening at the oral stage of traditions, when, when people were passing along stories of Jesus by word of mouth. Uh, and a few years ago, I it occurred to me, something that should have occurred to me maybe 30 years ago, that it'd be useful to know what we know about memory. Uh, and how people remember things, and how people forget things, and how people uh, misremember things, and how people invent things in their head. And so I spent a couple of years reading about memory, uh, not not what Christian authors are saying, but but just what psychologists are saying, and what sociologists and anthropologists are all saying about various aspects of memory. And so this book is the result of uh, of that kind of interest in in memory studies. Mm. And very important in a sense in the role of the the establishing of the gospels because as far as we're aware there were, there were, the gospel writers weren't with jesus making copious notes as he was delivering the sermon on the mount rather there was a period before these accounts of jesus were written down and, and this is the period you're sort of interested in is it 
Right. So I, I guess a lot of readers of the Bible don't really uh, think about this, but the um, but the, the 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 normal date given for Jesus' death is sometime around the year thirty uh, of the Common Era. So it might have been it might have been twenty nine, it might have been thirty three, but sometime around the year thirty. Also, scholars are relatively uh, convinced that the first gospel to be written was the Gospel of Mark, and that it was probably written sometime around the year seventy. Um, John is probably our last gospel, written maybe around the year 90 or 95. And so what this means is that there's a very long gap uh, of between 40 and 65 years between the time Jesus died and our first accounts of his life. And so my question is, what's happening to the stories of Jesus before these gospel writers get their accounts? Uh, and what I argue in the book is that uh, what fairly obviously is happening is people are telling stories about Jesus as they're trying to convert people, and then once they're converted, as they try to educate them in the Christian faith, they're telling stories about Jesus' life. And my question is, where did they get these stories from? And how did they know? And who's telling the stories? And how's the this act of transmission, how, how, how is that affecting the stories? So that sometimes they get changed or uh, sometimes even invented. Okay, well, that's that's the the nub of it essentially, and um, and and obviously in the book you argue that a certain amount of change would have happened uh, before we get the, the the stories written down that we have of the Gospels. Um, you've had a chance to read the book, uh, albeit briefly, before I uh, invited you on for today's program, Richard. What's what's your overall reaction to the book before we get into some of the specifics? Um, I think it's very important that Bart has taken up the issue of memory, because mm. um, I was actually the first New Testament scholar to write about the psychology of of, uh, of memory and eyewitness testimony. I had a chapter in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses about this, and there have been a few later mm. um, discussions of it, but it's true. We, we now know a great deal about memory um, from the research in cognitive psychology. We know more about oral tradition and so forth from anthropology. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a wealth of material here which is clearly relevant uh, to the study of the Gospels. Um, so I'm very glad Bart's taken that up, and it's a, it's a great sort of uh, stimulus to talk about that. Um, I think um, I probably disagree with about 75% of, of Bart's <laughs> book, so that there's, there's plenty of room for disagreement okay. between us. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have invited you on if, if there wasn't some room for disagreement, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have in, an interesting time getting into that as we go. Uh, if you're listening and you would like to give your thoughts on today's discussion, you're always welcome to get in touch uh, via email, that's unbelievable, at premier.org.uk. You can listen to today's show online and leave your comments there as well, if you like, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable for the show website you can download the podcast more resources and the like there as well and uh, don't forget that we're online at uh, the twitter and facebook accounts as well facebook.com slash unbelievable jb if you'd like to get in touch that way at unbelievable jb my twitter handle so uh, do get in touch tell us what you think about today's discussion on whether the gospels portray an accurate reflection of the historical jesus we're talking about eyewitness testimony oral tradition and all that kind of thing Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. How about, Richard, maybe laying out one or two of your, your main issues? I know that, for instance, in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, one of your uh, the main things you had in your site was, was what's called form criticism. 
Um, do you want to briefly explain what form criticism is and, and why you think, uh, why you're critical of it, frankly? I, mean, I think form criticism is extraordinarily important because it's really the reason why the majority of gospel scholars take it for granted that the gospels are the product of a long process of oral tradition. People didn't think that before the form critics. It, it's uh, the form critics' idea. Um, and they had specific reasons for thinking that, um, which come out of their notion of the forms. Um, what most people who know anything about form criticism know is that the form critics classified the stories in the Gospels as miracle stories, controversy stories, healing miracles, mm. so, so forth, various types of, um, of story about Jesus or, or saying of Jesus like parables. Um, but the key thing, and, and really any of us could do that, it doesn't mm. take uh, a, a whole cohort of great scholars to mm. tell us that. What was important about the form critics is what they did with those forms um, and how they thought they arose. Um, and they thought they could tell from the state of those forms that we have in the Gospels that the Gospel material had evolved over a long period of tradition. Mm. And perhaps two reasons they thought that. One was they thought that a particular form, such as a miracle story, could be correlated with a particular use to which it would be put in the church, in, in teaching or, or, or such like. So the healing miracle might be used um, to uh, demonstrate Jesus' power and say something about who he is. So that gives it a context in the preaching of the church. So the form critics thought that the, the story in that form must have taken shape in, the, in its use in, in the church, in the Christian communities. Um, the other thing they thought they could do was to trace the history of the traditions by the, um, by the condition, because they thought that the, form, that the gospel stories must have originated in pure form. So when someone first used a healing miracle story um, to preach about Jesus, it had, as it were, um, a perfect, it, it was a perfect example of that form. Mm. And over the years, the forms get mixed and muddled and added to, uh, and so many of the cases we've got in the Gospels are actually the forms in, um, in developed state, in, in having, having developed, as it were, beyond mm. their first mm. uh, condition. Uh, so they thought they could trace this tradition history of how the, the, um, how the uh, traditions developed um, and they thought the Gospels therefore must be at a certain fairly late stage mm. in the development of these forms. Um, the other thing I'd say about this is that hardly anybody now believes that the forms worked like that. Okay. They got it wrong. And so my big question to Bart and other people is, um, if the form critics were wrong about how the traditions developed in the early church, how do we now think we know that the Gospels are a product of oral tradition. Hmm. Okay. What, what's your response to that, Mark? Um, yeah, no, that's all very interesting. And um, I guess I'd say several things. One thing is, um, uh, I think Richard's right, that nobody really agrees with the form critics anymore. And so, um, so um, disagreeing with them has really no bearing on my book, because um, I talk about the form critics, and I explain why I don't think they were right either. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there was a long period of oral tradition because the form critics said so. Um, I think so. I think that that's just kind of obviously the case, that, that stories about Jesus are in wide circulation 
among his followers um, for for 40 or 60 years before the Gospels were written, and the vast majority of people telling those stories were not were not there with Jesus. Uh, the vast majority of them aren't living even in Palestine. The vast majority of them are living in other cities throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Christian churches are being established throughout the empire, and um, and people are converting. They're converting when they hear stories of Jesus, and then they tell stories of Jesus to others in order to convert them, who tell stories to others to convert them, who tell stories to others to convert them. That goes on for 40, 50, 60 years before the stories get written down. Uh, and so that isn't predicated on any of the findings of the famous form critic from the 1920s. Um, so it's, I, I completely agree. They're, they're the first ones really to take seriously the fact that there were oral traditions. But, uh, but the, the views that modern critical scholars have today aren't predicated on the findings of these, of these famous German scholars from the 1920s. Hmm. Richard? Yes. Um, you see, I would want to distinguish between two things. We can talk about how gospel traditions circulated in the in the Christian movement, and 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 uh, Bart, you have a, a an account of that. One might differ from particularly the way it happened, um, but uh, gospel traditions circulated for decades in in the early Christian communities. Yes, but the other question that that I would put is. Are the Gospels themselves products of that oral tradition? In other words, did someone writing a Gospel simply um, pick up the traditions as they were in his own church community, wherever that was, and write them down? Or, which is what I think, did the writer of a Gospel take the trouble to go to really good sources to get his material? Um, So... That, 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 do you see what I mean by saying the Gospels are not a product of the oral tradition? And, and is it your view that Bart does essentially buy into a form of um, the, the, oral, the Gospels being a result of this, this oral tradition as such? Uh, yes, I think he and, does. And, and you would differentiate that from what you call oral history? Um, yes, uh, oral history. I mean, I use that term because it means in modern usage. It's actually a... Um, a distinction Van Sina in his book on oral tradition, which Bart has used in the book, um, uh, propounds between oral history, which takes oral tradition, which takes place over several generations. Oral history um, is recording things within living memory. So it's basically the kind of thing that modern oral historians do, but it's also the way the ancients thought good history should be written. You have to write history within. within memory, within living memory, so that you can actually talk to people who witnessed the events. That's how you write history. That's what I mean by oral history. Now, can I just, let's, you know, the earliest gospel, I think we're completely agreed, is Mark's gospel. Um, My view of Mark's gospel, as I've argued it in the book, of course, is a very traditional one, um, that Mark's gospel is a version of Peter's um, way of telling the stories about Jesus, Peter's version of the gospel traditions, um, recorded and and creatively adapted, of course, by the evangelist Mark. Um, there's nothing chronologically improbable about that. Peter, we know, died in the year 65. He died a violent death in Rome in the year 65. And I think that Mark probably wrote his gospel very soon after that. Um, so I'm not differing from the general view of the date of Mark's gospel, but we only have two tradents of the traditions, if you like. We mm. have Peter himself, and we have Mark the Evangelist. And I do not see anything about Mark's Gospel um, that 
makes that view implausible. And so what you're setting up here is the difference between what you see as the oral history being used in in Mark's gospel, which is the eyewitness testimony, let's say, of Peter, against others who would say that Mark is uh, writing down a sort of a more developed over generations type of stories that that were handed down in some way, but but not in such a direct fashion. Yes, uh, I mean, the the general view, which I I think Bart um, puts very well, is that these stories passed from mouth to ear to mouth mm. many many times a chinese whispers effect yes indeed. in effect yes um but is that is that a fair characterization of what what you see the gospel of mark as being uh well yeah i i i certainly don't think that uh mark was written by the the disciple mark who was an aramaic speaking jew in palestine um the gospel of mark is written by somebody who's a highly educated greek-speaking christian uh 40 years after the events. Uh, Mark doesn't say anything about being based on eyewitnesses. It doesn't say anything about being based on the testimony of Peter. It's not written in the language that Peter spoke. It's not written in the language that Mark spoke. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, Richard's right. I mean, his view is a very traditional view. It's, it's the view that was in circulation for uh, a very long time. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem to be a view that's very plausible, given what we know about Mark's Gospel. What we have in Mark's Gospel is uh, a collection of stories um, that appear to have been in circulation by word of mouth for many decades before Mark even heard about them. Uh, and so uh, I think you have to take seriously the linguistic features of Mark, which is that it's a highly literate Greek account written by a highly literate Greek speaker who's not living in Palestine. Could I come in on that? Yes. Mm. Um, I think, it, well, let's suppose, and my view doesn't depend on supposing, but let's suppose that the author of Mark's Gospel is the John Mark of the New Testament. He comes from Jerusalem. Uh, he comes from a wealthy family in Jerusalem. He would have had a Greek education. Um, Mark's Greek is very simple and basic. Um, it's the Greek of someone for whom Greek was not his native language. I would say many scholars would agree with that. You know, this is an Aramaic speaker who who can speak Greek, but he's not. He's a, he's an educated, intelligent person, but he doesn't have a, a literary education in good Greek. He writes very simple Greek, very skillfully. Um, but even supposing it's not Mark of Jeru- Mark of uh, Jerusalem, um, whoever it was, whoever it was who could write such a gospel. There's no implausibility whatever in him having got his traditions straight from Peter, who was alive until the year 65. Yeah, so I disagree with that. Um, So um, one thing that we need to take into account, two things we need to take into account. One is that we have no reliable information about who John Mark may have been. He shows up in the the book of Acts, and he does live in Jerusalem, but we don't we don't have any independent verification of any information about about this person. But let's suppose he is a Jerusalem-dwelling Jew in the first century. So one question to ask is, how many people in the first century in Palestine could speak Greek, uh, and how many of them could write Greek in any way? So uh, there have been studies of literacy in Palestine in the first century. Uh, Richard knows these studies as well as I do. The, the, uh, the best study is by Catherine Hetzer, who shows that probably around 3% of the population of Palestine could read and write. Uh, so maybe 3% of the population was literate. But most of those people who can read and write can't read and write in Greek. 
one, one should ask, how many authors from Palestine do we know of from the first century who could write in Greek? Well, there's two. Uh, from the entire first century, and they are much. They, these are these are very upper class uh, Jewish aristocrats, and so was Mark one of those? Uh, well, uh, probably not. I mean, we don't know, but I mean, we don't know anything about him. And so, uh, in order to assume that Mark could write a gospel like this, you'd have to presuppose that he was one of the very upper crust aristocrats in Palestine, and we simply have no evidence that that was the well, case. I, I mean, we'll, we'll let Richard respond to that. What, what about the other contention of Richard, though, is that whoever wrote it, it's perfectly within the timeline for it to have been passed directly, you know, it to, to be from the accounts of, of Peter, essentially. It's his eyewitness testimony recorded by someone. Yeah, yeah, no, but it could have been, could have been an account uh, given to him by Judas Iscariot or an account given to him by John, or an account given by Barnabas, or or account given by any of the thousands of people who lived in Palestine. But he wasn't in Palestine. He's living outside of Palestine. And so where did he hear his stories? He almost certainly didn't make a trip to Palestine in order to, to uh, interview an eyewitness. If he did do that, it's surprising that he didn't say that he did that, because that would have helped verify his account if he had said that I've actually gotten this from an eyewitness, but he says nothing of the sort. Do, well, a couple of things to respond there. Firstly, the, the identity of, of this writer, but also why you think it is plausible, Richard, that these, these, these are actually the recorded uh, testimony of, of Peter. Can we just go back? I mean, I don't want to get into a long discussion of literacy in, uh, in Palestine. I think Catherine Hetzer's estimate is probably too low, and there's a good deal of discussion about this. Um, but if we're talking about Jerusalem, we must remember that a large number of Jews living in Jerusalem came from the diaspora. Um, and according to the, the New Testament, if we take this to be the John Mark of the New Testament, Mark was related to Barnabas, who had estates in Cyprus that he sold. He came from Cyprus. Um, so uh, the Jerusalem community would include a considerable number of people for whom Greek was actually their native language because they came from Greek-speaking areas of the diaspora. Um, and as you say, elite um, Jewish citizens uh, and again the book of Acts portrays Mark's mother as having a big house in Jerusalem they were, they were a wealthy family he would have had a good Greek ed education as for example Josephus did um, yes. Can but, I just ask a question yeah? about that Richard? Mm -hmm. yeah. Between the year 1 and the year 65 how many Greek speaking authors do we know of from Jerusalem? How many authors from Jerusalem do we know of at all? Um Exactly. And how many, how many wrote in Greek? Well, well I, I'm, I'm saying we have very few Jewish authors from that period. We don't have it. Right. For, from Palestine. That from wrote Palestine. In oh, we don't have any who wrote in Hebrew either. That's why I don't think that they wrote. I mean, th these were not people who were writing. These were people who were illiterate. The, the, the majority, the majority of, of Jewish, uh, the majority of Palestinian Jews um, were illiterate, or maybe they could just write their name or some basic thing. I, I quite agree. Um, I think quite a lot of them could speak a bit of Greek, just the, 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 the same way as if you go to a Middle Eastern village today, they all know a few words of English. It was a kind of international language at a very basic level. Um, but I, I quite agree. That doesn't enable them to write books. Um, I'm not attributing any of the Gospels to um, a Palestinian Jew um, with two exceptions. One, one is Mark and the other is the author of John's Gospel. Both of them, I think, came from Jerusalem from fairly elite uh, 
aristocratic, if you like, circles in Jerusalem. And it's well, perfect. if that's true, they'd be the only two Greek authors we know of from Jerusalem uh, in this time period. In other words, we have no analogy of this happening among any other Jew in the period. Well, jo- Josephus is contemporary with the author of John. Well, Josephus was writing. Josephus himself says that he had trouble writing Greek. He, he wrote in Aramaic. He wasn't trained to write in Greek. Jo- Josephus had trouble writing the very sophisticated literary Greek that his Antiquities and Jewish War are written in. He had helpers to polish his Greek. He didn't need them in order to write Greek. And once again, I think we've got to stress that both Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel are written in very simple, straightforward Greek, far below the literary level of Josephus. We're going to take a quick break, and um, we're already getting into a fantastic discussion, a high-level discussion on the the issues around the authorship of Mark's Gospel. Much more we want to cover, though, in the, uh, the next section of today's programme. We're asking, how did the Gospel traditions reach the writers? of the Gospels. Two very different uh, opposing scholarly views join me today on the programme. Bart Ehrman, author of the new book Before the Gospels, and in it he claims that in the period before the stories of the life of Jesus were written down, uh, oral history preserved these stories and they would have changed and evolved in the hands of many people. Not quite that way, says uh, Richard Borkham, our other New Testament historian today. His book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses made the case for the reliability of eyewitness testimony in the Gospels, and we're going to continue to hear their discussion, their debate on unbelievable in the next section of today's programme. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. With me, Justin Briley, Unbelievable is the place where you can access high-level academic debate, hopefully done in an accessible way. Uh, That's what we aim to provide each week here on the programme that gets uh, Christians and non-Christians talking. Today, we're doing the first in two-part programme where we're looking at Bart Ehrman's new book. It's called Before the Gospels, How the Earliest Christians Remembered, Changed and Invented Their Stories of the Saviour. And uh, Bart, in a sense, has for a long time on this show represented a 
kind of critical, sceptical view of uh, the reliability of the New Testament accounts. And uh, opposite him today, we've got Richard Borkham. So great to have two such great names with me today. Uh, Richard is uh, himself a noted New Testament historian, author of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. We're going to be picking up the conversation again on the authorship of Mark and whether it represents the memoirs, if you like, of Peter, the apostle. Um, If you want to get in touch about today's show, let me encourage you again to email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can also find links to my guests today, their books and so on from uh, the show today. That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable and uh, if you go there you'll find your way as well to many other shows that both Richard and Bart and many other New Testament historians have uh, contributed to you may want to start downloading the podcast if it's your your first time listening to unbelievable and don't forget we've also got unbelievable the conference where we really open up these issues at a popular level with a whole number of thinkers and speakers as well happening Saturday the 2nd of July in central London Uh, so do check that out as well at the website Uh, it's going to be a great day for really plumbing into some of the issues around uh, the historical credibility of the Bible and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so lots to look forward to. Um, and of course, we'll hear some of your feedback later on in today's show. So let's uh, return to uh, the issue we were debating before we took our break, gentlemen. And uh, Richard, um, you were making the case really for uh, the authorship of Mark and that it's not at all implausible as far as you're concerned that uh, John Mark would have been a fairly well-heeled person able to write the kind of Greek that that Mark has written and so on. Maybe let's move beyond that because we're not going to get you to agree on that and probably won't get you to agree on this next issue either. But uh, you're pretty convinced that, as you've said, the Gospel of Mark is, if you like, the memoirs of Peter. Um, Bart says they're, 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 they're a kind of accumulated tradition um, which doesn't have this direct connection to, to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Um, how, how would you develop this, your evidence for this? Uh, where would you go? Yes, I, I mean, I do think that um, Mark is an author. Whoever he was, he's an author. He has a creative role in, in his writing. I'm not wishing to downplay the contribution of Mark as the author of his gospel Um, but I'm saying that the idea that the sources from which he got the stories and sayings of Jesus were primarily from Peter himself is entirely plausible and there's nothing about the gospel that um, refutes that. Now uh, why do I think positively that these traditions do come from Peter? It, it comes from actually putting together two sides of an argument. One is looking at the evidence of the gospel itself and the other is looking at the evidence of a man called Papias um, who was writing at the beginning of the second century and who, as it happens um, we only sadly, one thing I do agree with Bart about is if we could wish for some ancient Christian literature to be restored, Papias, I mean, it's a great tragedy that we don't have Papias, because he could have told us all kinds of interesting things. Um, but anyway, we do have two fragments of what he said about the Gospels, and they are the earliest uh, statements about the Gospels um, outside the New Testament itself. And so very interesting, and they've been poured over by scholars for centuries, and all kinds of things have been said about them. Um just briefly, what Papias says about Mark's gospel is that uh, Mark was Peter's interpreter or translator, um, and he wrote down the sayings and stories about Jesus um, as he heard them from Peter. Um, now, the form critics, uh, uh, until the form criticism, that 
evidence was taken very seriously by most gospel scholars. Mm. The form critics, critics made it seem very dubious because they said, um, look at the Gospel of Mark. It's obviously something which results from a long process of developing tradition. Therefore, papers cannot be right. Um, it seems to me that uh, one doesn't have to uh, say that about Mark's Gospel. Um, there's nothing about it, in, to my mind, that requires a whole developing tradition other than Peter's own uh, reminiscences. Um, but positively, is there, some, is there anything about Mark's Gospel that suggests uh, that it has this kind of Petrine background? Um, Peter is remarkably frequently referred to by name in the Gospel, uh, more frequently, of course, than any other character except Jesus. Um, most of the Gospels have a lot to say about Peter, but in terms of uh, the length of the Gospel, there's, there's more reference to Peter than any of the other Gospels in Mark. Um, moreover, the whole thing is presented, as it were, from Peter's point of view. Um, now, a lot of the time we see what's going on from the, from the point of view of the bunch of disciples, group of disciples, um, but sometimes that is narrowed, sometimes to the three disciples, Peter, James and John, uh, and then sometimes to Peter himself. So Peter is actually the line of continuity. He's always there for almost all of the events of the Gospel, until, um, of course, his denials of Jesus at the time of Jesus' trial, and then he drops out of the story completely. And then, of course, some very important things happen in terms of Mark's story, the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus, the finding of the empty tomb. And Mark, at that point, I think, takes great care to show us that there are other eyewitnesses that step in, as it were, to take Peter's place as, as credible sources of Mark's narrative. And those are the named women, the three named women, disciples of Jesus who are there at the cross, at the burial, at the empty tomb. Um, so um, it seems to be the whole of Mark is constructed so that from the beginning, virtually the beginning of the story onwards, we have Peter as the key person who could have communicated these traditions um, uh, 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 to the writer of the Gospel. And, and then when Peter drops out, um, Mark is very careful to point to the substitutes, the three women. So, so as Bart says, why doesn't he name Peter as the author in that sense? Uh, in, in sort of the way that, that Luke starts to set out his, his stall with, I've gone to the eyewitnesses, I've spoken to these people. Um, we don't get that with Mark, do we? Um, no, of course, Mark doesn't have a, a formal preface. He doesn't really tell us anything of that kind. Um, Luke is the only gospel writer who does that, and Luke, I think, is more deliberately modelling himself on ancient historiography, mm. where historians had prefaces where they explained things. But as a matter of fact, um, historians are historians in the ancient world are very um, reluctant to, as it were, interrupt their stories with explanation. Um, and you can quite often, I think, detect... I mean, the new edition of Jesus and the Iowitzes has some of this evidence. <laughs> um, you can detect points where, for example, Plutarch, the biographer, draws on an eyewitness source, but he simply mentions the person in such a way as to indicate that they are there in the narrative. Right. And um, I mean, writers of this period, I mean, they're storytellers. They want to keep a good story going. They don't intrude their own voice into the story. So we never have Mark speaking, as it were, on his own account and telling, mm, us, tell mm. us, telling us anything, really. He never has a first-person statement. Mm. Uh, nor does Luke, once he's got past the preface. Mm. It's just not the style yeah. of that sort of literature. 
Okay. Um, so, so firstly, Bart, um, is that an adequate response to the issue of uh, the fact that he doesn't sort of put Peter as the source at the beginning of that gospel? And and secondly, wh- where do you think it came from if it wasn't from from Peter as an eyewitness? Uh, well, I think it's the best case that can be made. <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, I don't think I, I don't I don't I don't find it at all convincing. Um, so, you know, if if you want to claim that a, that a, an account that we have is based on an eyewitness, you need to have evidence of that. Uh, one piece of evidence would be if somebody claimed it was based on an eyewitness, which is precisely what Mark doesn't claim. He could have started with a preface the way Luke did, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking about Luke's preface, because I think Richard and I disagree about that, too. But he could have started with a preface saying that, in fact, this comes from Peter. Uh, and I don't think that it's right that ancient biographies, biographers um, refused to interrupt their good story to talk about their sources, uh, because that's exactly what Plutarch does. Uh, Plutarch will be telling a story about something, and then he'll say, well, some of my sources say this, some of my sources say that, and this is what I happen to think. Uh, and so this, this, it was a very common technique uh, that biographies, biographers followed. Uh, so Mark could, could have done that. Uh, I think the reality is that if if someone were to read Mark's gospel and have no no ideas at all ahead of time where it came from, they would never think that this came from Peter. Uh, there's nothing about Mark to make you think it came from Peter. But what about now, all, of, all of what Peter is a main figure in the yeah. Gospel of Mark? Mm. But but every uh, every narrative has main characters. Uh, nobody would want to argue that the main character in every narrative was the eyewitness who was behind it. Uh, just take an example. Uh, we have, for example, a number of apocryphal acts of the apostles. Uh, so the Acts of Thomas, for example, is an account of, of how Thomas uh, went to on his missionary journeys to India. Uh, nobody thinks that these accounts of Thomas are historically accurate, and nobody thinks that they go back to an eyewitness account. The figure named most commonly in the Acts of Thomas is Thomas, but nobody thinks that the author of this account went to Thomas to get his stories. Uh, So the mere fact that Peter shows up a lot in Mark's Gospel has no bearing on whether Peter was the source for this Gospel. Do you want to respond on that, Richard? Well, just briefly, I, I think it's also a question of reader expectations, and my case does uh, depend upon supposing that the first hearers or readers of Mark's Gospel would expect it to be based on eyewitness testimony. Um, and this is partly a question of, of date, that um, if, if Mark is, in a general sense, within the, the category of ancient biography, um, a biography written within living memory of the subject of the biography, as Mark's Gospel was, people would expect it to be to be based on eyewitness testimony. And so they'd be looking for the characters in the Gospel who could be uh, the plausible eyewitness source. And for the, Can for I you, just ask you, Richard, mm. why, why would somebody expect that? I mean, uh, because uh, that, that's I what, think we have evidence that there were people who didn't think that Mark was based on eyewitness testimony. We have evidence from the ancient world? Yeah, because, I mean, you take, for example, Matthew and Luke. They both used Mark's Mm. account uh, to construct their accounts, but they both changed Mark in rather radical ways. Uh, That suggests that they didn't think that it was some kind of sacrosanct document that came from an eyewitness. They thought that, in fact, it got information that needed to be modified, uh, that they did modify in their own accounts. 
So, uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't know what evidence there would be that somebody reading an account, uh, for example, a biography of Plutarch, that they would think that Plutarch had interviewed eyewitnesses. Um, it's there, uh, so I, so I don't know what evidence you're thinking of. Well, there, there is evidence from from, from Plutarch. Of course, it depends, and Plutarch wrote biographies that stretched over many centuries, very, very ancient ones and, and, and near-contemporary ones. Um, so it would only apply to those biographies of, of um, Plutarch that uh, were written reasonably close to his own time. Um, and I think there is evidence there that he did draw on eyewitness sources where, where, where possible. Um, but when it comes to the... You see, I think that the way Matthew and Luke uh, treated Mark is entirely consistent um, with what I think about um, ancient historical writing um, from eyewitnesses. And that is, there's and, you, and there has been some work done on Plutarch and his sources, and the ways in which Plutarch would, would, would modify his, his sources, the ways in which actually Plutarch himself modifies his use of the same material in more than one of his works, shows that, that these kinds of... Um, uh, alterations to, to the sources, um, telling the story differently, um, uh, are, 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 are very comparable with, that, with those of the Synoptic Gospels. You know, we don't need to go to oral tradition to explain the differences between Mark, Matthew, and Luke in, in the parallel material. Um, the way that Matthew and Luke use their material is, is quite consistent um, with, I think, the way ancient historians used. Uh, what they regarded as very good sources because they felt free to tell the story a little bit differently to a breathe. I mean, Matthew's always abbreviating Mark and a lot of Matthew's changes to Mark um, simply result from his desire to get a lot more stuff in his gospel so he has to abbreviate Mark. Um, but I, but I, I, I really don't see that any problem with supposing that Luke and Matthew regarded Mark as essentially Peter's memoirs. We are going to have to move on a bit beyond that. I'll give you a quick chance to respond, Bart. And, but I'd like to talk about the other Gospels and their titles too, because I think Richard also wants to pick a few bones with you on that front from the book. But um, yeah, do, do you want to respond quickly? Uh, well, just I, I just wanted to know what, what evidence there was mm. that that, uh, that people would have expected Mark's account to have been based on an eyewitness report. Um, I don't know wh- why that would be the expectation at all, any more than anybody would think that the Acts of Thomas was based on an eyewitness report. It's a question of date. It's a question of dates, says, says Richard. But we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment anyway, um, because I think we've, we've gone around that one quite a bit already. Um, just a reminder, we're talking about uh, the Gospels. Do they portray an accurate reflection of the historical Jesus? Not necessarily, says Bart Ehrman. Before the Gospels, his new book says that the earliest Christians remembered, changed and invented their stories of the Saviour. Um, opposite uh, Bart today, Richard Borkham, whose own book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, has been very influential in establishing the role of eyewitness testimony and the reliability, therefore, of the Gospels. Um, uh, I love sitting and listening because I, l- I learn so much when I when I hear these kinds of discussions going on. But um, well, let's uh, talk to you again, Richard, about uh, some of the other issues you, you had with the way Bart treats um, the Gospel writers, the eyewitness testimony and so on. Um, you, you have an issue with some of his dating of some of the titles of the Gospels and that kind of thing? Um I think the I mean, the issue of the titles of the Gospels I think is a very interesting one and I, I, I don't pretend to have a um, a fully conclusive 
um, reasoning on it, because I think there are some very tricky issues involved. Um, it's very often said that the Gospels are anonymous. And, of course, in the sense that the, the authors are not named within the text of the Gospels, that's perfectly true, they are anonymous. Uh, we only have the titles to tell us uh, purported names of the authors. Um, but actually a great deal of ancient literature, Greek and Roman literature, is anonymous in just the same sense. In other words, the authors are not named within the text of the works. We only know, know who the author is uh, from the titles that, that have come down to us, but they're titles that were given by scribes or librarians or whatever um, so in a sense it's true that the gospels are anonymous but it doesn't mean that they were intended to circulate without names um, now I think the Luke, case of Luke's gospel is, is, is particularly interesting here because Luke of course has a preface in which he dedicates his work to a named patron Theophilus um, I think it's inconceivable that a work dedicated to a named patron would have been anonymous in the sense that nobody knew who wrote it. Um, Theophilus would have known who wrote it, and the earliest uh, circles of people who, wrote, who, who, who read it would have known who wrote it. Now, I think Bart agrees that the, the, that the first people who read the Gospels knew who wrote them, but I think he thinks that this easily got forgotten um, as the Gospels circulated. Um, one one key issue there that I think Martin Hengel highlighted very well is once let's take the case of Luke's gospel suppose everyone knew who Luke, who Luke was in the original circle or where he wrote it it passes down to other churches people make copies take it around most of those churches to which Luke circulates already have Mark's gospel they have to have a way of distinguishing one gospel from the other and nobody seems to me to have thought of a way in which they could have distinguished them other than calling them the gospel according to mark and the gospel according to luke i mean i'm okay. just trying to establish that the traditional names attached okay. to the gospels um that there's a good case for saying that those names were always attached to the gospels yes. from the beginning now who they were whether mark was yeah. john mark and so forth that's right. that's another sure. issue but but essentially it goes against um bart's thesis that these were anonymous in that sense they 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 never had really um a person attached to them uh, they never had in that sense a direct connection to um, eyewitness testimony as well um, I guess in, in so, his, so Bart I think thinks that these traditional names were simply given to the Gospels in the late 2nd century am I right? Is that right Bart? Uh, that's absolutely right um, I, that is what I think um, it's important to, to point out that um, that when you have the early quotations of these Gospels uh, nobody identifies them as connected with anybody uh, and so, for example, you, you start getting quotations. That appear, they appear to be from the Gospels um, in the early second century, with authors such as, uh, well, at the end of the first century, First Clement uh, quotes Gospels, Ignatius quotes Gospels, Polycarp quotes Gospels, uh, Justin quotes Gospels. None of these they'll quote they'll quote sayings, but they'll never they'll never say this. You know, this is from the Gospel of Mark or this is the Gospel of Matthew. They they never do that, and Papias doesn't do that doesn't do that either. Uh, and so it's very strange when 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 you get down to Justin Martyr around the year 150 or so, uh, Justin will refer to refer to what appear to be our Gospels, but he doesn't call them by our Gospels. He calls them the memoirs. Uh, and in fact, the only memoir that he names is the memoir of Peter. He's talking about, he's talking about the Gospel of Peter. Uh, so uh, 
it's not until you get to Irenaeus in the year 180 or 185 that you have any author saying that the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, this is the first time that we know that our Gospels go by this name. Uh, and so that's why uh, a lot of scholars just, just don't think that these Gospels were given names. Uh, and I, I agree with Richard that the reason to give these names was to differentiate among them. Uh, it's only when you have multiple Gospels in a community that you need to differentiate which one uh, is which. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily the case that the author, that, that the community that was reading Luke also had Mark in front of it. Uh, it might have been the case. It might not have been the case. Uh, we, we have no way of, of knowing one way or the other. But to say that, they, that this gospel was called the gospel according to Luke in, say, the year 90, uh, I don't think that there's any evidence for that. But, but you, you surely are not claiming that nobody had any way of distinguishing one gospel from another in what they called it until Irenaeus. Um, what what it appears to be the case, I mean, if you simply look at what they say, if you see how First Clement quotes these books, or if you see how Ignatius deals with these yes, books, or yes. you see how Polycarp deals with these yes. books, they don't do what you say they should be doing. They no. don't say, this is, this is Mark's version, or this is Luke's version. I, I didn't say that they should be doing that. I, I mean, what they are doing, of course, is mostly quoting sayings of Jesus and for them the authority is, is Jesus himself so they ascribe sayings of Jesus to Jesus himself it's much less important but they also talk about incidents from the life of Jesus I mean for example Ignatius talks about the birth of Jesus mm-hmm. and he doesn't tell us so this is, this is based on uh, the, uh, the account of the Gospel of Matthew uh, they, they don't identify these Gospels in ways that, that you're, you're saying that they should have been doing well you, you know I mean they're writing for Christian readers who are familiar with the Gospels they're referring to. Um, it, it's, like, um, it's like Jews um, referring to the, the Law of Moses, you know. Um, they, don't, they don't tell us it's in Genesis, they tell us it's, it's what Moses said. Um, uh, or, I mean, quite often the New Testament refers to something spoken by the prophet, it turns out to be Isaiah, but they don't have to tell us that. Um, well, can, no, I ju- can I just... It makes sense, except the later Christian authors do tell well, us that can, can this I, comes from Luke, or this I, comes from Matthew. Can I, can and so there we know for certain that these authors had Gospels called Luke and Matthew. Well, well, can, can I make two, uh, you don't have evidence of that from the okay. early sources until Irenaeus. Can, can, I just, okay, can I just make a couple of points about this second century evidence? First of all, Everybody, except you, Bart, thinks that Papias referred to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, you actually think that, that these references are to a Gospel of Mark other than the one we know and the Gospel of Matthew other than the one we know. Um, but Papias certainly does refer to two Gospels which he ascribes to, uh, to apostles or followers of apostles. The other point I want to make is, is on Justin, because I think you neglect the most interesting reference in Justin where he says that the memoirs of the apostles were composed by the apostles and by their followers by the apostles plural and by their followers plural that tells us a good deal more about them than just the memoirs yeah when he thinks one of those was Peter that's, that's not terribly clear um, but in that particular case, he's thinking of more than one gospel ascribed to an apostle, and he's talking about gospels ascribed to followers of the apostles. What, what should we think of? Mark and Luke are the obvious, obvious um, references. 
Well, no, that's not the obvious reference at all, because he doesn't refer to, he doesn't call them Mark and Luke. He doesn't tell us which followers he's referring to. He's simply saying that there are Gospels in circulation, some of them written by apostles and some by their followers. But first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that any of these Gospels was actually written by any of the followers of Jesus, who were lower-class, Aramaic-speaking peasants from Galilee. So, uh, so Justin, in fact, is not right about that. He's, he's, he's discussing these matters 80 years after the Gospels have been put into circulation. Um, so I, I don't see how you can use him for evidence that the Gospels were called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He doesn't even mention Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We're talking about when did the Gospels acquire these names? And are you saying that um, Justin knew these Gospels, but he knew them as anonymous Gospels, and he ascribes them to followers of Jesus. Um, you know, wh- what were these Gospels he knew called? That's what I want to know. I don't think they were called anything in Justin's day. How could they not be called anything? I mean, you, 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 had, you had several... You had several you're, you're used to calling these Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so you think, well, they've always been called that. In they, they, fact, they, they, the they, early authors don't call them those okay. things. They're simply anonymous works floating around that people are saying, well, these must go back to, to followers of Jesus. But a particular church community would have a library by the early 2nd century of, of a few books, Two or three of them at least would be Gospels. How do they say, you know, today we're going to read from this Gospel? Um, they had to have ways. To a liturgical setting in your church where people get up and say, say <laughs> this is from the Gospel of Luke, and you're imposing that on the second century. Uh, uh, yeah. My question is where is the evidence that they were called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before Irenaeus? Well, can you That's t- the first time they're called by these names, we'll, we'll, and if you well, impose look, some names on them earlier, you're imposing it. You're not basing it on any evidence. Uh, okay, that, that one, one last thought from Richard, and we'll go yes. to an, another my, break. My point is that if those were not the names what were they called they had to be called something for obvious practical reasons not imposing modern liturgical usage or anything but if you've got several gospels you've got to have weight it's inconceivable that they didn't call them anything did they call them gospel one gospel two gospel three what what did they call them we'll come back to that <laughs> getting, getting interesting uh, in the studio today uh, as we debate whether the Gospels portray an accurate reflection of the historical Jesus. And towards the end of uh, this uh, discussion, we've been talking about uh, whether they were um, attributed early on to the people that we know them as, as uh, uh, the titles we know today, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to this and finish off today's discussion. But another bite of the cherry next week, because we're going to continue talking about eyewitness testimony, uh, the psychology of eyewitness testimony as well when it comes to the Gospels. Uh, so join me again in a couple of minutes time. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, as we finish up uh, today's edition of the programme, uh, the discussion we've been doing is whether the Gospels portray an accurate reflection of the historical Jesus. Bart Ehrman is a popular New Testament historian, been on the show loads of times, actually. Uh, Before the Gospels is his latest book, How the Earliest Christians Remembered, Changed and Invented Their Stories of the Saviour. And so I often bring Bart in to have a good old discussion with another New Testament scholar of some kind on uh, on whether the Gospels are reliable uh, as the uh, testimony of Jesus and his followers and so on um, and that's precisely what we've been debating today Richard Borkham whose book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses 
was really, a, if you like, a benchmark in this sort of area of scholarship. Um, he argues strongly for the eyewitness testimony present in the Gospels and their subsequent reliability as, a, uh, as reflections of Jesus' followers and, uh, and the life Jesus led. Um, perhaps it would be good, we've, we've done a lot of debate so far, gentlemen, around the whole issue of um, who wrote Mark, um, can we believe that it was Peter's testimony, um, and then talking about the titles of the Gospels and whether the early church would have adopted the, the, these titles from early on. I mean, the question still is, I suppose, were these actually written by the people that they apparently seem to, to to be purported to be written by as far as the titles go matthew mark luke and john um you've already explained why you believe mark has a a good claim to be the author of mark um richard well what about the other titles then well let, let me agree with bart for a change <laughs> <laughs> a refreshing um, change <laughs> uh, I, I do i do think it's rather unlikely that Jesus' Galilean followers, people like fishermen and farm workers and so on, who, who were the Twelve Apostles and, and other followers of Jesus from Galilee, uh, I think it's very unlikely that those people could have written the Gospels we have. I mean, one can't say it's impossible. They could have had all kinds of literary help and so on. You know, We don't know enough. But it's unlikely that any of the Gospels were written by fishermen or uh, Galilean peasants. Um, and I don't claim that they were. Um, the traditional theory about Luke, of course, is that he's a Greek-speaking Gentile, um, not from Palestine at all, but he spent time in Palestine, he met people. Um, I agree with Bart that Matthew the Apostle could not have written Matthew's Gospel. Um, Apart from literary capability, um, Matthew's Gospel is based on Mark, it's written in Greek, and, and so forth. All I would say about Matthew is that the title Gospel according to Matthew doesn't, of course, have to indicate authorship. It means Matthew version of the gospel. So all I would say about Matthew is that because I think the title probably goes back to the origins, the gospel must have been in some way associated with the Apostle Matthew, but I don't think it was written by Matthew. Um, uh, And I don't think the author of John's gospel was John the son of Zebedee the fisherman. I think he too, like John Mark, was an educated Jerusalem Jew. And we do have to take account of the fact that when Uh, the early Christian movement moved, as it did right from the beginning, to Jerusalem. Um, It's composed not only of Galilean peasants, but also of all sorts of people who were living in Jerusalem. Um, Elite, educated uh, Jews, uh, Jews from the diaspora whose native language was Greek. Um, Already within the original Jerusalem church, uh, you've got people who are perfectly capable of writing gospels and those are the people i think wrote mark's gospel and john's gospel and and john though do you make the case that john and the author of revelation are one and the same no i think that's very unlikely okay let's um let's talk about uh, that then bart just for for a minute as we start to conclude yeah, today. yeah. so, so what, what yeah so i um let, let me i mean let me make two points one just in direct response to that i i i don't think that um that there's really good evidence that these books were written by anybody living in palestine um it's true that some of the upper crust elite in palestine could speak greek but um the reality is we don't have any christian authors who we don't have any authors we don't have any jewish authors in this time period who are writing greek in palestine uh, prior by the time Mark's Gospels, when Mark's Gospels written, the only author we have is a Jewish author living in Rome, 
uh, who who wrote in Greek, and so I, that seems unlikely. Let, can I just take a second though to explain how I I see this thing? Go ahead. Uh, the early the early church fathers who quote these gospels quote don't don't say anything about them being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's happening in the early church in the second century is that there are a lot of gospels floating around. Uh, there's a gospel allegedly written by Peter, one allegedly written by Thomas, one allegedly written by Philip, one allegedly written by Judas Iscariot, or about Judas Iscariot, one, one dealing with Mary Magdalene. They, they're all called these things, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. And Christians in the proto-Orthodox churches, the churches that are supporting the views that later became the dominant views within Christianity, are using a range of Gospels themselves, but they're anonymous. And so by the time of Irenaeus, he has to, he's a heresy hunter. He's trying to weed out the false Gospels. And his Gospels are these Gospels that are being widely used, but they don't have names to them. And so they've got to associate them with names of apostles. And so they pick two people, Mark, uh, Matthew and John, as two of the apostles, and then they want Gospels representing the two chief apostles of Rome, Peter and Paul. But everybody knows that Peter and Paul didn't write Gospels, and so they associate Peter with, they say Peter's version was written by Mark, his companion, Paul's version was written by Luke, Paul's companion. And so what they're doing is they're naming these Gospels in order to provide them with apostolic credentials. Uh, this doesn't happen until all these other Gospels are floating around, and the early Christians have to say, look, these Gospels we're using are apostolic, and the Gospels you're using are forgeries. Hmm. So it, it was all about claiming a certain level of authority for these particular gospels it was it was a helpful device in that sense richard yeah that's why it's not an accident that it's Irenaeus who's the first one to say this because Irenaeus is our first major heresy hunter he's the one who's concerned to make sure that his traditions have apostolic roots i mean to to maintain this you have to say that papias is um, discussion of Gospels he ascribes to Mark and Matthew are to other Gospels, Gospels we know nothing about, rather than to the Gospels we know as Mark and Matthew's Gospels. I, I find that well, a, a very... A very thing we could say about pap- one thing we can say about Papias is the only thing... He, he tells us two things about Matthew's Gospel. He says that the Gospel of Matthew is written in Hebrew, and he says that it is a collection of the sayings of Jesus, the logia, the sayings of Jesus. Matthew's Gospel that we have was not written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and it is not the sayings of Jesus. It's an account of his, his words and his deeds and his passion. And so what, Ma- what Papias is describing isn't anything at all like our Matthew. Well, I, I think Papias made a mistake when he thought it was written in Hebrew, certainly. Um, I mean, it's a very brief account, and usually Papers, of course, calls his own book the um, account of the sayings, logia, of Jesus. And actually, Papers clearly told stories about Jesus, because we have two or three of them. Um, But I think the thing that really interested Papias was the words of Jesus. So he tended to use logia to to cover the contents of a gospel, because the sayings of Jesus were what mattered to, to Papias. We're That's right, but he doesn't call his book the Logia of Jesus. His book yes, is the exposition of the Logia of Jesus. Oh, it depends. He's giving uh, explanatory comments on the sayings of Jesus, and he says that Matthew wrote 
Logia. Well, Matthew's Gospel is not a collection of Logia. Matthew's Gospel is a narrative Gospel. And so both of the things Papias says about Matthew aren't true of our Matthew. And so, no, I don't think he's talking about our Matthew. Papias' title, the translation of Papias' title is, is debatable, and I, I think it means account of the sayings of Jesus. Um, in other words, it's, it's uh, Papias wrote something like a gospel book, a collection of sayings and stories about Jesus, and we have some of the stories. It wasn't just sayings. We are. I don't think this can. Ju- I don't think Papias' book could be just an account of the logia of Jesus because it's five volumes long. He's actually giving an exposition of the teachings of Jesus. Well, I can just refer to my recent article in the Journal of Theological Studies on the subject. Well, we, we, <laughs> right. well, we can both refer to a bunch of things we've written. <laughs> well, look, we, we will leave it there for today's programme. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been a really spirited discussion. Uh, and uh, who, who knew that uh, the, the, the ins and outs of Papia, Papias could uh, fr- provide such, uh, such debate? But, but it does, and, and it's really interesting. I, I've, I've been fascinated to listen today, and I'll be fascinated to uh, listen in next week as well i hope you will be too because we're going to do a round two with bart airman and richard borkham they're my special guest and they've been with me today so thank you both gentlemen for being with me i'll make sure there are links from today's program to both your websites and where they can find both jesus and the eyewitnesses and uh, jesus before the gospels as well um because uh, that's obviously the the substance of our discussion today um so bart and uh, and richard join me again at the same time next week but for the moment gentlemen thank you very much and we'll do round two next time unbelievable with justin Briley. well i look forward to hearing your responses via email to today's program uh, you can send them in unbelievable at premier.org.uk and don't forget we're available via twitter and facebook lots of ways to get in touch with the program at unbelievable jb if you want to follow me on twitter and send me your thoughts and uh, facebook.com slash unbelievable jb to follow the show that way on facebook and we've had some interesting comments in response to last week's program it was the second time that jonathan mcclatchy joined me this time for a debate uh, with a muslim on whether the first christians the early followers of jesus believed that he was the son of god believed he was divine well here's tony in boise idaho um, who says listening to the podcast arguing whether the early disciples believed in jesus's divinity i'm wondering why your muslim guest didn't cite any early writings by john disputing the claims of paul after all john was alive after paul was killed if paul was a heretic and off track from the teaching and beliefs of the disciples history would certainly yield plenty of documentation and for that matter where are the early church writings disputing the writings of john his epistle is clear that jesus is god if it had been fabricated those who knew him would certainly have written to the church's warning of the error it's also amusing that he's willing to believe the hypothesis of scholars who live centuries after the fact but can't believe the words written down by those who lived in the same generation as the apostles namely a disciple of an apostle like polycarp why does he think an apostle would allow a false account to be written or why would a follower of an apostle want to write a false account considering that lying is in opposition to the christian faith to what gain death certainly polycarp would not have died for a lie much less preach a gospel contrary to john's teaching obviously yusuf is holding fast to his presupposition in spite of the evidence presented by jonathan if he were to honestly apply the same logic and critical thinking to the claims of islam he'd surely come to a different conclusion uh, thank you tony and yes uh, yusuf ismail was the muslim guest on that program from last week here's uh, david um, who takes the opposite view to you tony and says as a christian who does not believe in the deity of christ i was surprised 
to say the least, that Yusuf Ismail missed the goals that Jonathan McCatchy left open for him. The elephants in the room, mixing metaphors, are firstly the lack of mention of Jesus' deity in the gospel preaching, and second, the lack of teaching of it in the epistles. Regarding the preaching in Acts, Jesus is never proclaimed to be God or divine. Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Son of God, Saviour, but never God or divine. Acts 2.36 says that Lord is the title given to the risen Jesus by God. Son of God is a messianic title, as evidenced by the use of it in the Gospels and so on. Yet evangelicals frequently tell us that we need to know who Jesus is, i.e. that he is God or divine, to be saved. But it seems that the converts in Acts were not told who Jesus is. Oops, it seems that the converts were not really saved upon their conversion. Uh, Regarding the lack of teaching in, say, Paul's epistles, if Paul had believed in Jesus' deity, surely he would have argued for it with the same thoroughness and explicitness as he does, for example, salvation by faith and the importance of the resurrection. He can be clear and explicit when he wants to be. Trinitarians cannot tell us why there's no real argument or teaching in Paul that Jesus is God. The best that Jonathan could cite as Paul teaching Jesus' deity is Philippians 2, but Paul's aim here is to teach Christian humility with Christ the example, not Jesus' deity. He does not consider objections, and there would be a few to consider, uh, cite Old Testament scriptures and draw conclusions. At best, you could say he mentions Jesus being divine before he became a man, but morphe, as in the form of God, does not mean very nature, it means external form. Jonathan implicitly admits this when he notes its use in the next verse where Jesus takes the form of a servant. This cannot mean taking the very nature of a servant. Besides, where is Paul's conclusion that Jesus must be divine? Nowhere. Uh, So there you go. Um, You conclude by saying the one solid argument that Muslims have against the deity of Christ is the absence of evidence that the apostles believed in it. If they had believed it, they would have preached and taught it, but they did not preach and teach it. Therefore, they did not believe it. So why should Christians today believe it? Well, that's an interesting perspective, David, this view that you just don't find enough sort of hard-nosed teaching uh, explanation of the deity of Christ in the epistles and in the preaching you find in Acts. be interested if anyone out there listening uh, has an opinion on that, would like to respond to to uh, those objections from David there. Perhaps uh, Jonathan himself could write in as well with his thoughts on that. I'm sure it's a an objection that Jonathan has encountered as well. Um, thanks. For, so thanks for those thoughts that have come in by email. Uh, before we go to just one or two uh, emails, I'll try and squeeze in at the end of the show. Uh, just I uh, wanted to give space for a little bit of a conversation I had recently with Jay John. Uh, Jay John, if you're not familiar with him, is well known in the UK as an evangelist. Uh, he's a very down to earth, funny uh, preacher, speaker, and uh, he's written books. He's led courses and he's done uh, tours all over the the country and seen many people come to faith through them well he's going to be talking to us about doing evangelism the natural way at this year's unbelievable conference on the 2nd of july so here's just a section of our conversation recently when uh, i asked him how he'd like to be remembered in posterity well i hope it will be something like um j john always introduced people to jesus good mm. yeah wherever he was yeah you know whether it, he was walking around <laughs> in a coffee shop in someone's home or whether he's at the emirates and two um he tried to help as many other people to yeah. do the work of an evangelist you're going to be joining me uh, i'm glad to say at unbelievable the conference yes on the 2nd of july and i'm looking year. forward to hearing the other speakers <laughs> you've got a great lineup yeah, of yeah speakers. We're, we're, we're really looking forward we've got all no. kinds of friends joining us yes i mean what i wanted to 
what the reason I invited you though, Jay John, is because I know you're you're great at speaking to the common person, um, bringing it down to earth, um, and and certainly something you've actually worked on yourself is the natural evangelism course. Yes. Uh, I think a lot of people they come to evangelism, they think, oh, I need to have all the answers, I need to be an expert. Are these some of the common fears you find with people if if, if you mention the e word evangelism? Yeah, I think people do have fears. Um, but then the perfect love of Christ casts out fear. So mm. I'm like, get over it. <laughs> you know That'll I mean? be your message. No, no, it's, it's kind of like, come on. Right. You know, the perfect love. Of, right. So let's get the perfect love of Christ into you okay. and cast out some of your fears. Yeah. OK, I know there have been some bad models yeah. of evangelism and there have been some mistakes mm. made yeah. by the church. Yeah. Yeah, but there have been mistakes made in the name of medicine. Mm, but mm. we still go to the doctor yeah, yeah. and we still go to the hospital when yeah. we need to go, right? So, you know, get over it. Yeah. Right, now, <laughs> let's, let's kind of move forward. Let's break it down. And, and I think sometimes we can make a mountain out of this, whereas yeah. actually I'm trying to make it natural. Yes. yes. And having studied, studied evangelism, read evangelism, lectured on evangelism written books on evangelism justin here's my conclusion this is it this is it okay what is evangelism evangelism is giving out an invitation to a party Mm -hmm. that's out of this world (laughs) that's great that's it yeah that's it so yeah would you like to give out these invitations (laughs) okay let me show you how yeah great you do it through Mm. praying Mm -hmm. caring Mm -hmm. and sharing right and this is how you do it. Yeah. So every one of us can do this. Mm. Well, we're, we're hoping to uh, unleash people's inner evangelist yes. uh, at the conference. And yes. we look forward to you bringing a message about how we can do that without having to be Superman. Thank In fact, you. We, we, we're going to uh, being yourself. Um, you don't have to be an extrovert either, do no. you? Because I think no. some people look at J. John and they think, well, I can't be J. John. Look. In a court of law, you have a witness. Now, the witness gets up and says, look, let me tell you what happened to me. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You, don't, they, you don't worry about yeah. what you don't know. Yes. You just talk about what you do, you do know. know. Yeah. But then there's the lawyer. <laughs> the lawyer gets up and presents the facts yes. to the jury in such a convincing manner mm. as to get the jury to make a decision. Right. Every Christian is a witness. Uh-huh. So they're either a good witness yeah. or a bad witness, yeah. but they're a witness. Okay. And some of us are also lawyers. Making the best case. Making yeah. the best case. We're either evangelists, we're either apologists. Yeah. So, well, we're going to be bringing them both together. And at, we're bringing the them both together, That's which is really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. So um, we Thank shall you. meet again. We'll for meet that again, day. Justin. Well, once again, if you'd like information about Unbelievable, the conference, uh, we've got a massive range of speakers, uh, some 10 or so speakers who are going to be at the conference this year. Uh, People like Jay John, who'll be very much bringing a very down to earth, uh, practical ways in which you can uh, be a natural evangelist. 
And we'll be having some of those more technical presentations from New Testament experts like Gary Habermas. Uh, Tanya Walker is going to be there, uh, giving us some of her expertise as a speaker and thinker for Arzim here in the UK. And and we've got all kinds of other people contributing in various seminars. Loads to choose from on the day. Uh, We're doing it in uh, in partnership with the Christian Thinkers Society this year. Jeremiah J. Johnston, the president of the Christian Thinkers Society, will be one of the speakers as well. And we've got some uh, really exciting stuff happening around the conference too. Uh, You're going to be hearing about the Museum of the Bible. If you haven't heard of it before, you will soon because it's a major uh, initiative out in the States, but really that has a global implications. Uh, just the most extraordinary project that's currently underway. And we'll be hearing from Carrie L. Summers, one of the key people involved in that as well at this year's conference. So lots of exciting things happening, and I hope you can join me. Again, if you want to get details, book tickets, and especially those early bird ones before uh, the 15th of April, do go to Premier Christian Radio dot com slash unbelievable 2016 well time has just about beaten me i'm afraid so i think i'm going to have to leave it there and say thank you for listening to today's program again if you want to get in touch via email you're more than welcome to send them in unbelievable at premier.org.uk or indeed leave a comment underneath the most recent show online premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable the place for all your apologetic and theological debate needs for the moment uh, let me give you a reminder of what's coming up next week you're unbelievable Ding ding, it's round two between Bart Ehrman and Richard Borkham. This time we're discussing the psychology of eyewitness testimony. This is something Bart goes into in some detail in his new book and we'll be hearing Borkham's response to that, something he also considered in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So we'll be asking, can we trust stories that were told and retold and perhaps even retold again or was that not really the way they were passed on anyway before they came to be written down in the gospels when it comes to the new testament so uh, another edition uh, looking at this theme again next week hope you can join me for that i'm justin Briley. been great to have you with me on unbelievable coming up next the profile <laughs>